The 1v1 interview series is a production of the Boss Rush Network of Podcasts. Visit bossrush.net to listen to our podcast and read our articles, game reviews, and more. You can also follow us on Twitter at Boss Rush Network to stay up to date with our content. Thank you for listening. Hello, everyone, and welcome to 1v1 with the Boss Rush Network. I'm your host, Celeste Roberts. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing Mason Prophet, owner of Prime Arcade Sales and Repair in Odessa, Texas. Mason has nearly two decades of experience repairing and refurbishing retro games. Hey, Mason, how are you? Well, not bad. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. So a little background, Mason and I met through a mutual discord of a podcast we both listen to, the Retrovaniacs podcast, and we also play Mario Kart pretty much every Friday night. Um, I don't know, if, are you one of the top people in our little Mario Kart game? If I am, then that speaks very badly of everyone else because I am not very good. <laughs> Tell everyone who you pick to play oh, as. Uh, Peach, because she's hot. I'm sorry, not Peach, <laughs> Daisy. Who am I picking? <laughs> Oh, gosh, that's blasphemy. You always talk about Daisy. Well, there's so much to talk about with Mason. And in fact, I've been wanting to interview him for a while. And he's actually getting pretty famous. I think I'll let him toot his own horn because he was recently interviewed in his hometown. Yeah, I got an article in the paper and not the way that you would expect if you knew me. Uh, I just had someone contact me just kind of randomly on my business page and was like, hey, you want to want to do an interview for the Odessa American? I'm like, Okay, so we just set up a time and the dude came and asked me some questions and photographer came by and had me act as a model, lean against my cabinets, take a few pictures and a couple of days later it was out. And I've also linked to that article in the show notes, which Corey will set up. So I'm really excited to learn more about you this way. It was really cool to read about you. Were you surprised? Have you ever been interviewed before? Um couple of times for like some podcasts and stuff, but it's the first time like any actual official publication contacted me for anything. You're going to be in the New York Times next, I think. I don't know if I'm ready for the big time yet. <laughs> well, why don't you tell us about yourself, Mason? What What are some of your hobbies? Where are you located? Well, I live in West Texas, Odessa specifically. Uh, we moved here late 2011. Uh, before that, me and my wife uh, lived and grew up in Abilene. I lived there for 23 years. Um, other than being a small business owner and a doggy dad, I don't do a whole lot. Really? You seem you seem like you're pretty busy with wrestling, though. That's something else that you're. I don't know if you're still involved with it, but you've mentioned it before. Not anymore. Um, so I had toyed with the idea of training to be a professional wrestler since I was a teenager, basically. But there was nowhere in Abilene to do that, whether, you know, there's no local schools. There wasn't even really a local organization that put on shows or anything like that. Uh, so it was just kind of something that ended up on the back burner. Uh, a couple months after we moved here to Odessa, my wife heard a radio advertisement for a local show. And so we went, we went to it, and I talked to a couple of the guys that had worked the show, and the Tuesday, or maybe the Thursday after that, was my first day of training. And that was April 2012. Wow. So, uh, wow. I, I trained for a, a couple of years, uh, but it was 
maybe two or three months in that they threw me into my first match. Which, if I go back and watch it now, I wasn't ready. Not, not a good idea. Did, did you do wrestling in high school? No. Um, there there was no wrestling at my high school anyway. And that's more like Greco-Roman style or freestyle wrestling. And what I did was pro wrestling, which is fake. Okay. So were you someone who liked to watch a lot of WrestleMania growing up? Is that what how you got into it? Actually, no. I didn't grow up watching wrestling. I didn't start watching wrestling until maybe senior year of high school. Um, it, it just wasn't a childhood interest of mine. It's something I came across later and just kind of enjoyed retroactively. What do you like the most about it? Uh, the brotherhood of it all. Um, there's just like this unspoken bond between anyone who's you know, in the business, so to speak. Um, just this respect that everyone kind of has for each other and unspoken rules that everyone, you know, if they're worth their salt follows. Uh, and, and just whenever you work shows, uh, just the feeling of getting to work with all your friends and hanging out before and after and, you know, putting in the work to put on a good show is, I mean, I was never an entertainer of any sort, so it's not anything I'd ever experienced. And how long did you do that? Well, I, the last match that I had as a wrestler was in May of 2014. So I only did that for about two years uh, because I started my business in 2013 and I didn't really have the time to do both. So I kind of chose the one that made more money and hurt less. Uh, I stuck with the promotion and helped out with training and things like that. Uh, I still work shows, but not as a wrestler. Uh, I would either do uh, as a referee or a manager. Uh, I did live commentary for a little while, which was my favorite thing I've ever done. They, they paid me to talk smack about my friends. So I really enjoyed doing that. So is that scripted or would you improv that? For the commentary? Absolutely mm -hmm. improv. Um, you have you usually have two commentators. You've got your color commentator and your play-by-play. -play. Uh, as the former wrestler, I was typically the color commentator, and I would work as a heel, meaning I was the bad guy. So I would uh, talk up the bad guys, talk down the good guys, make fun of them, uh, basically bury them during their matches, and that was my job. And the other guy would be like, you know, hey, cut that out. We're trying to keep it professional here. And I'm like, no, we're not. I've been doing this longer than you. Shut up. <laughs> So you're not doing anything with it at all anymore? The local organization doesn't really exist in much of a capacity anymore. The owner passed away a few years ago, and his son inherited the school and the promotion. Uh, so he kept the school running, and he still put on a few shows. Uh, but over time, the membership of the school started to decline until it was like you know, three guys in the ring once a week. And it wasn't worth, you know, paying the rent on the building and, and keeping someone up there to do the training and everything like that. So it just kind of fizzled out. Oh, do you miss it? To an extent. Um, a lot of the guys that worked for our organization also do work for some of the other smaller organizations in West Texas, out of Lubbock or Abilene or wherever. And uh, there's still opportunities to work. I could still be a ref if I wanted to, but it usually doesn't meet up with my schedule and it's rarely here in Odessa so it's usually a big commitment to go out of town spend an entire day doing a full show and things like that uh, I haven't worked a show in well over a year God, that sounds like a big time commitment too 
It is, and as rusty as I am, I don't know how good of a job I'd do anyway. I'd probably count to three when I very clearly was not supposed to. <laughs> so what are the challenges of wrestling? So for people who maybe aren't too familiar, if you use any terms, can you explain them? Like maybe, I don't, I'm, I don't know that much about it. I played Saturday Night Slam Masters, and that's my the extent That's, of my that's a 100% accurate representation of what wrestling is. <laughs> so... Wrestling is more physical than people believe it to be, mostly because they're like, oh, it's fake. You know, you learn how to fall. You're, you're falling onto a trampoline. It doesn't hurt. Nothing you do hurts. And all of that is absolutely wrong. Um, wrestling absolutely takes a toll on your body. Um, there are certain ways to do certain things, but there are a thousand ways any of those can go wrong. So even the simplest maneuver can end in an injury uh, when you least expect it. Um, People talk about, the people who don't know, talk about how the ring is just a giant trampoline, and that's not true at all. If you've ever seen a ring broken down, it's a giant steel frame with uh, struts going beneath it, and then large wooden planks going the other way. And then on top of that, there's a very thin layer of canvas, usually about an inch thick, or a, a foam, and then a canvas stretched over that. And then that's it. The only softness of the ring is the bounce that you get whenever you fall on it, because it does give a little bit with the wood. But that's it. Uh, and that's really only in the center of the ring. If you if you take a bump on the apron or in any of the corners, or especially on the outside, there's far less give. And if you don't land correctly, sometimes even if you do land correctly, it's going to hurt. Oh, okay. Have you ever sustained a major injury? No, I was I was very lucky in that regard. I got plenty of bumps and bruises, you know, like a sprained ankle and things like that. But I never had any concussions or broken bones or anything like that. And I attribute that to not doing it for very long. I'm just, I'm sure if I had continued wrestling and I'd been doing it for like ten years, I'd have a whole medical history I could walk you through. So, what is a at the, your I guess happiest memory or fondest memory from that time? Um. Usually it's less about doing the shows because, I mean, that's that's fun. And then the experience of, you know, walking out of the curtain and, and having people react to you, which they usually booed me because that's what they were supposed to do. Um, <laughs> I, was, I was pretty good at my job. Um, it's usually just hanging out in the locker room or behind the curtain and just getting to know all these guys and learning about their stories and, what they're trying to do with wrestling, where they want to go. And, and I, I've had some of the guys I've worked with go on to decent success. Uh, I've had a, a few of those guys went on to do some work for WWE or AEW or any of the big promotions like that. Uh, one of them got signed to WWE and worked for them for a good while. And he's in Japan right now uh, doing work for a uh, promotion there. So yeah, if, if you have the drive and the skill and, you know, the passion, you, know, you might just make it. What would you say a day in the life of someone training for that is like? What kind of routines can someone expect? Well, you wake up in the morning and it takes you about 30 minutes because of how bad you hurt. Um, there's a lot of, you know, not just physical toll, but physical work that goes into it. So time spent in the gym on your body and then time spent either, you know, outside or in a tanning salon getting to look perfect. Um, there's a lot of time spent in the ring training and practicing. Uh, one thing that they say is that you're never done paying your dues. 
So even when it comes time to work a show, you show up early, you help build the ring, you do whatever the promoter asks you to do, you stay late, you break everything down, and you know you don't leave till everyone else does. Um, there's a whole mentality that goes behind it that you either respect the business or you don't. And if you do, you'll be fine. And if you don't, you're not going to get booked anywhere. Wow. Are there a lot of egos in that industry? Absolutely. Um, backstage politics is a huge problem, and it's very hard to find a place that doesn't suffer from them. So usually the best you can do is kind of keep your head down, do what you're supposed to do, don't ruffle any feathers. And that's one way to go about it. You can go the complete opposite way, and maybe you do well, maybe you won't. Maybe you you know, rub the wrong guy the wrong way, and you get your ass beat in the back of the locker room. But, <laughs> you know, I mean... The way I see it, wrestlers, to want to be a wrestler, you have to be a certain kind of messed up in the first place. Uh, to, to want to go get beat up in front of people for fun, uh, you know, it takes a certain kind of mentality. And you can ask my wife, hanging out with wrestlers, some of them are just some of the dumbest people you've ever met. You know, they can be, they can be sweet, they can be overly sensitive, but sometimes they're just dumb as hell. So I've, I've heard this with... I guess, UFC fights, and I'm wondering if it's true with wrestling. A lot of times people who get into those fields feel like it's the best way to make something of themselves. Is that accurate? Well, I mean, if getting beat up or beating people up is your only, like, life skill, I suppose so. <laughs> uh, it's it's certainly a lot, more, a lot more fun than trying to go get a college degree and, you know, work your way up through the corporate ladder so you know hey i can see that that's what i've heard i don't know if i could do it are you familiar with the women's side of wrestling i've i've trained with very few women but i mean to an extent yeah yeah do you know anything about that industry that you'd like to share is their training different is are the politics different for the most part the training isn't that different um a lot of schools don't have like a, a separate class for women because there's typically not enough to fill that anyway. So a lot of times they just train with the boys. And uh, anytime we've had a woman, a woman in our school, it was the same way. She just trained with us. Okay. And I mean, you, I mean, you're pulling your punches anyway, but when you, when you do that, you don't really change the way you work with someone. So it might, it might work a little bit different as, as far as like a storyline goes Mm -hmm. or like a mixed tag match or something like that, and the reason why you're fighting a woman. But uh, for the most part, uh, they're they're just another one of the guys. The storylines must be so much fun to come up with. That's typically out of our hands. That's usually the oh. booker. Uh, you know, you just show up and they're like, all right, here's what you're going to do today. Oh! Like, yes, sir. Okay, we're going to do that. Um, usually there's some, you can have some kind of input towards, you know, who you are, what you do. You know, they're not going to typically come up with your name and your gimmick. You'll come to them with that, but at least in the indies. But uh, as as far as who you're facing and who's going over and what you do in the match, a lot of that is up to the booker, and you just you do what they say. Wow. At what age do most people leave this profession? Way too late. I mean, Ric Flair just had his last match, and he's like 73. What? It was very ill-advised. He's, <laughs> he's been retired for a while. But um, usually you should probably leave it before you're in a wheelchair. And a lot of people don't. 
Oh my gosh. Do you have any favorite professional wrestlers or any moments in professional wrestling that you like to talk about? I'm a big fan of uh, a lot of the the guys that are still current, but have been doing it a long time. So like Chris Jericho, uh, Randy Orton. I, I was a big fan of uh, a lot of Ted DiBiase's work. It's just more 80s stuff. Um, as far as my favorite moments, the only live show I've been to was WrestleMania 30, which was in uh, in Nolens. Oh, don't you dare! You know you know better than that, Mason. <laughs> Do I? Yeah. So that that's the only real event I've been to, and that was the WrestleMania where the Undertaker lost the streak. He was. 21 and zero at WrestleMania. He had never lost a match at WrestleMania, and that's the one where he lost. So, being there in that crowd and just the reaction that happened, because when when it got to the three count, the entire arena was silent, absolutely silent. There's not a single peep, as everyone was sitting there waiting, just in disbelief to be like, was that a three? It looked like a three. It couldn't have been a three. There's no way that was a three. And then as soon as everyone realized that, indeed, The Undertaker had lost, uh, just this absolute roar of noise that emanated from the crowd, uh, it just went from zero to 100 immediately. And I'd, I'd never heard or experienced anything like that. Uh, so just to be there for that was insane. So you said that a lot of wrestling is scripted. Was that loss scripted? Yes. Oh, okay. um, it's, it's As far as backstage stuff goes... Uh, the Undertaker's had control over who he would lose to, and it ultimately it was his decision that he was going to lose to Brock Lesnar. Um, so that was that was his decision. But uh, ultimately, yeah, as as far as win losses go, that's that's up to the decision of the booker, not so much the performer. I have I, oh my gosh, <laughs> that had to be so much fun though to be there. Oh yeah, it's it's a whole different vibe. Watching it on TV is one thing, but being there and being part of the crowd and sharing in the reactions is a whole different animal. Do you notice anything different about the way that wrestling is going now compared to when you were really involved with it? I don't really watch. No? It's uh, it's, it's nothing against the current product. I just watched SummerSlam the other day, and, and it was good. I enjoyed it. I didn't know who half the people were, but I enjoyed it. Um. Part of the reason was uh, I used to subscribe to the WWE Network, and I would watch uh, a lot of 90s wrestling because I didn't grow up with it, so I missed a lot. So I was catching up, and I would watch it while I was at work. And I just had a uh, I just had my phone hooked up to a TV I have mounted on the wall, and I would just watch while I was doing stuff. Whenever WWE, uh, the WWE Network sold to Peacock and went to that platform, uh, they have a thing in their app where if you try to do that, you don't get any video. I guess they don't want you to basically start up a pay-per-view and show it to a whole bar full of people and no one pay for it. So uh, ESPN Plus does the same thing. And so since I wasn't actually able to watch anymore, I stopped paying for it. So I haven't been watching for a couple of years now. Wow. So you that's a good segue into your current claim to fame with repairing video game systems and, and pinball machines. So what are your earliest memories of video games? What got you into video games? Uh, growing up, I mean, when it came to consoles, we always had something. Um, I grew up poor, so we were usually a system behind. So I, I, I 
was born in 87, so I should have had an NES, but I had an Atari 2600 instead. And by the time everyone had a Super Nintendo, I had an NES. By the time everyone was starting to get, you know, Sega Saturn and and Playstations, that's when I got my my Super Nintendo and Sega Genesis. So I was usually system behind, but we always had something. And there's always, you know, a few places in town to rent from. Uh, I also had a, uh, a fair bit of early memories with arcade machines because one of the family friends that my parents had uh, worked for an operator in town. And sometimes we would go like to the bowling alley or wherever that they had machines that also had a bar and they would drink and I would play for free. So I was able to get through and play through all the games beginning to end that I'd never would have been able to afford to do without that. And uh, a couple of times uh, if they had a machine that, you know, wasn't ready to go on location yet, or if the location wasn't ready for it yet, uh, they would bring it to our living room and leave it there for a few days. So I'd come home from school and it'd be like a, a Miss Pac-Man in the in the living room, be like, "Hey, we got this for like five days. Go nuts!" What? So, That's awesome. To say the uh, the guy that did that, he passed away, but his one of his brothers uh, still runs the business. So I've been able to go into that workshop and do some business with him a few times. So it's kind of neat. All this history behind everything that's in that building is the same history that I grew up with. So, Oh my gosh. What's your favorite memory from it? Any particular game or moment playing a game? Um, it's going to sound extremely nerdy, but I mean, how could it not? Um, I have two memories of playing arcade games where I just, I felt awesome at it. Um, one, I was like eight or nine, maybe. Uh, Ultimate Mortal Kombat 3 had just come out. And it was the summer my dad took me to the fair. Back then, the fair had a giant tent with a bunch of arcade games in it. And there was a group of college kids playing Ultimate Mortal Kombat 3. And I walked up, I was like, I got next. And they're like, all right, kid, whatever. And so I started playing and... I whooped this 19-year-old kid's ass like eight times in a row. And his friends were just dogging on him the entire time. It's like, you going to let this kid do that to you? And he's be furiously putting in quarters trying to beat me again. And, you know, the whole time my dad's just sitting there just laughing at him. So I, I, I beat him pretty good like eight times until he finally got me back. So I, I wonder if his friends still tell him about that to this day. Like, hey, remember that eight-year-old whooped your ass at Sub-Zero? I was. That was my next question. Who did you pick to play as? So, so always oh, so Sub-Zero. Zero. I, don't, I don't remember, but that sounds like something I'd do. Um, <laughs> the second memory, uh, I, this is when I very first started playing Dance Dance Revolution, so I was 15 or 16. Uh, we traveled to Lubbock, and I was hanging out in an arcade there, and I was also really big into Soul Calibur 2 at the time. And there's a, there's a mode where you create a character and play against everyone else's created characters, and you know, work on your stats and things like that. So I was trying to go through that and build up my character. People kept coming up and challenging me in the middle of it. And I was like, I just want to play my character. Leave me alone. Anyway, <laughs> all these people kept challenging me. I ended up winning 26 fights in a row, which is notable in itself. But one of my buttons was broken. So I was very limited in what I could do anyway. And so even with this limited move set, I was still kicking so much ass and I don't think I've had any kind of streak, you know, before or since. So do you still play DDR? I still have one. I don't, I don't know. Playing, it's a strong word. 
Um, <laughs> I, I, I did have an in-law suite with the game room, and DDR takes up half of it. Um, as little as I play it, I still don't want to get rid of it because that is my fifth or sixth dance machine. Because I kept buying them, playing them, stop playing them, sell them, regret it, buy another one. And I did that so many times where I was just like, I don't want to keep moving these things. So next one I get, we're keeping. So I've had that one for several years. And as much of a pain as it was to get it in that in-law suite, if we move, it's going with the house. Really? Those are 960 pounds. I don't want to move it again. <laughs> so, so you're not that attached to it. It's more of a laziness issue, but yeah. <laughs> I, I know if I, if I sold it, I'd regret it, so I'm, I won't. So what were some of your favorite songs to dance to on DDR? I'm sure there might be some listeners who also played that, or may, maybe even still play it. Well, the majority of the time I played on DDR was on DDR Extreme. Uh, I've played a couple of mixes that have come out since then, but for the most part, none of that's local. There are no arcades here, so if I want to play a new DDR, I have to go to Dallas. And I don't know any of the new stuff anyway, so... Uh, I played a lot of DDR Extreme, and then In the Groove 1 and 2 when those were, you know, out. Um, as far as songs go, I don't really have anything to point out. I, back then, it was like 75 pounds ago, so I could <laughs> I could play all the hard songs and, and get the best scores, and those were the machines that would actually keep a high score chart for every song, and so you'd see my name on the list just most of the way down which made a lot of people very upset. Um, I do not have the skill or the body to do that anymore. And most of the stuff that I used to play as a warm-up, I can't even get through now. I remember Turkish March. Is that correct? Wasn't that one of the songs? I don't know, maybe. That's what I remember from some of my friends who used to play it. So since you don't play that anymore, do you have any favorite game series or standalone games on any system that you'd like to discuss? Well, I don't tend to play a lot of current games, not because I don't like them or I'm just like, no, all about retro. No, it's just because I don't have money or time. So I, I, I can't sit down and commit to playing a game very often. And if I do, it takes me months to get through. Uh, I'm playing through Far Cry 6 right now because I found it on sale. And uh, I've had it for a few weeks, and I've got, I don't know, 12 hours into it, maybe. I don't have very much time to put into anything these days. So is it because you work on video games all day? You kind of like, oh, I want to do something else in my time off. No. Um, everyone, anyone who hears about what I do is like, you know, oh, it must be awesome to sit there and play video games all day. It's like, I don't play them. I just, I just work on them. And then I play them long enough to realize that they work, and then I'm done playing them. Mm -hmm. um, very, very rarely do I fix a game and I'm like, okay, I get to play it now. Um, if it is, it's something that I've, I haven't seen in a long time or I've actually never played before or it was just like a Street Fighter 2 or something that I just want to play a few rounds of because I enjoy it. But for the most part, once I fix it, I've confirmed, you know, joystick goes all the directions, buttons do stuff when you push them. I'm done here. I know what you mean. It's it's really hard to find time to play video games anymore, I find. Yeah, it's, I mean, being you know, old gets in the way. 
<laughs> you're not that old. Part of it is because um, my wife is a teacher, and so she puts an extreme amount of hours into what she does. And so I spend a lot of time basically creating an atmosphere that makes it easy for her to do that. So Aww. I do all the cooking. I do all the cleaning. I run the errands. I do the vet appointments, stuff like that, because I have the flexibility to do those things. She does not. That's so sweet of you, Mason. I know. I'm a perfect husband. <laughs> I know you both have been enjoying your pool this summer. I don't want to oversell it. It's just an above-ground pool, but uh, it's been very nice to just float and have a drink in. I could I can use a pool. I'll probably have to get one. <laughs> it's been too dang hot. I'll have yeah, to grab it's, a book. Well, that's, that's what she does. She floats and reads. I float and drink and watch TikToks or whatever it is I do. <laughs> well, how did you get into repairing arcade cabinets and pinball machines? And you also mentioned refurbishing retro games. So does that include old systems as well? Am I leaving anything out? No. Um, for a short while, I did work on like NESs and PS2s and a few like retro consoles, but I don't really do that anymore. Um, my first job when I was 15 was in an arcade. And it wasn't like a chain arcade or anything like that. It was just a dude. So I worked for this dude for four and a half years. And uh, after I left there, I worked for some of the big names. I worked for Namco, Cinemark, uh, Mr. Gaddy's, Chuck E. Cheese's. And um, working at that first arcade was, was the best experience because he didn't really know what he was doing as far as repairs or anything goes. He just bought a collection and put it in a building. And so he was kind of figuring this stuff out from scratch and I was staring over his shoulder the whole time. So by the time I was 17, I could strip a cabinet and rebuild it from scratch. Um, The arcade itself did okay. It paid the bills and kept the doors open, but not much else. And especially on weekdays, we didn't have a whole lot going on. So what he would do is he would go to auctions like game auctions and pick up a lot of broken equipment and we would fix it and flip it in our free time which we had a lot of free time Uh, so the way we kept the business going was to just flip all this broken equipment while we're just sitting there and you know there's like two people in the arcade let's get something done and that's how i learned how to work on just a variety of stuff and how to uh rewire a cabinet to build like a multi-cade or something like that um I didn't make a whole lot of use out of that info until years later when I started my own. I started doing that again because I didn't really do much of that working in other arcades. But uh, that's a skill that came back to get a lot of use. Oh, my gosh. Do you prefer working on arcade cabinets or pinball machines? I like going back and forth. Um, Usually if one pisses me off, I go to the other. There's such a wide variety of how these systems work over the years and depending on the ages that you typically working on one machine is completely different than working on the next. Um, pinball machines, if, if you lift up the play field and look underneath, you know, it could be dizzying how much is going on under there. And I hear that every time I do that in front of a customer. They're like, how do you know where everything goes? For the most part, I don't. But that's not relevant to what I'm doing right now. So, you know, if I 
need to figure something out, I'll, I'll look at the manual or I'll start tracing stuff out. But for the most part, all of this is not relevant to what I'm fixing right now. So don't worry about it. So do you rely on manuals? That's a good point. So is that how you even know how to fix it or is it mostly trial and error? There's a there's some universal things that work with everything you work on when it just comes to how wiring and circuits and things work uh, to the point where even without a manual, you can usually figure things out. But if you if you diagnose it down to a specific component, you really need to know how that component works, what it works with, how how it's wired and things like that. And so you do have to refer to a manual or schematics. And for the most part, all that's available online. Now, there's scans of manuals and schematics and even tutorial videos and things that people have made since then. And a lot of times you can just go to like forums and find someone who had the exact same problem you did. And this is how they fixed it. Maybe it'll work for you too. So. Wow. Have you ever, well, you mentioned that you were working on, before we started recording, you mentioned that you're working on something that is very rare. And how often do you run into these instances where maybe a manual is hard to find or it's hard to follow? Uh, some things just don't have very good documentation and some things only have good documentation in other languages. Uh, what I was talking about was a monitor that's, it's a Japanese monitor and there's very little information about it online because it's not in a lot of machines, especially just in DDRs. And a lot of people, when that monitor goes out, they just rip it out and put it in a flat screen anyway. So as far as repairs go, no one really works on them. You can kind of take it apart and send them to like a, a monitor repair center, but a lot of those places don't know what to do with those either. So they just recommend you throw them out, which is probably what I'm gonna have to end up doing to that damn monitor. So for older, arcade systems um, and cabinets that use different technology, is it hard to find the parts that you need as time passes on? Not as much as you would think. Um, a lot of them use very generic components that are still used in things today. So when it comes to resistors and capacitors and things like that, you, those are still very easily found. Uh, some of them do use uh, programmed chips. And if you don't have a programmer to do that, there are resources that you can find someone to burn those chips for you and send them to you. Uh, I just had to do that for a Defender that I was working on because I knew I had several bad chips, several bad ROMs, and I don't have the capacity to burn my own. So I had someone burn me a set and send them to me, and that fixed my problem. Um, some do have custom chips that are pretty much irreplaceable. The only way to find them is to cannibalize another board that doesn't work and just steal the parts you need from it. Uh, for the most part, those are few and far apart, and there are more modern replacements that you can put in to replace those, if, you know, worst case scenario. Wow. So does your job also rely on a lot of networking with other people in the field or who can provide the parts and everything? There are quite a few resources online. A, a lot of places opened up where you can buy parts from just a variety of different people. Um, for the most part, unless it's something very specific and very niche, I can go to a website, click add to cart, and there it is. Um, if I'm looking for a specific board for a game I'm working on because mine is unrepairable or just not worth the time it would take to repair it, um, forums and like Facebook groups are a good resource for that because you can just kind of put out your feelers, find out who's got something for sale and you PayPal and they ship it to you. And, uh, I've, I've had to rely on that for a lot of 
you know, things that I wasn't able to repair myself and something that you can't just find in the store, you know. You can't just go to Walmart and look for a Miss Pac-Man PCB. you got to find a guy who's got one and just have him send it to you. So would you say most of your clients are individuals, businesses, arcades? For the longest time, it was just dudes putting something in their garage. And I still have a lot of that. But uh, here lately, there's been a resurgence of retro arcades. Uh, they're kind of popping up left and right. And the ones that come to me... They either want me to help stock their arcade or run repairs for them after they open. And uh, that's actually what has stretched me kind of thin lately is I've been most of the things that I work on to put up for sale don't ever make it to sale because they just go straight to one of those places, which has been nice for me because those are guaranteed sales. But I also have customers like, hey, when are you going to have something for sale? It's like, where were you 25 cabinets ago? I'm, it's like, you're too late, brother. Have you ever been driving and you've seen, I don't know if this is common, you know how people leave stuff by the side of the road. Is an arcade cabinet or a pinball machine a common sight? Not very often, uh, but when it does happen, usually someone sees it and messages my page and says, hey, have you seen this? You should go get it. That's only happened a couple of times, but uh, usually if you don't know what to do with the machine and you don't want to take it to the dump, just put it on the curb, someone will pick it up. Wow. So call is that a big, <laughs> or call you up, yeah. Is that a big challenge, transporting these machines? Not anymore. Um, when I very first started, I didn't have a truck. I had to borrow, like, my brother-in-law's truck or my sister-in-law's truck, and getting things in there and, and transporting was a was a challenge. But over time, you know, I figured out easier ways to do it. I've learned to play Tetris a little better when it comes to making these things fit. Uh I've got an actual work truck with a lift gate that does most of the work for me, and I've gotten real good about how to move these things. And the only job I've ever had that wasn't working on arcade equipment was moving furniture. And so I know how to put stuff on a dolly and put it in a truck. So <laughs> there are, if I have to work for on, on, on like an exceptionally large machine, something that's too big to fit on my lift gate, there are certain challenges with that. Uh, most recently, I had to move a showcase cab, which is a giant machine with a 35-inch monitor, and then there's like a pedestal that comes out to where the controls and stuff are. It breaks up in two pieces, but that piece with a 35-inch monitor is several hundred pounds, and it's on wheels, and it's a little bit wider than my lift gate is. So typically, what you would have to do is have two people, and one of them just holds onto it while the other one lifts up the lift gate. And you push it in. Well, I don't have two people. So what I've figured out how to do is uh, I'll put one half on the lift gate and I'll put the other half on my pinball dolly. And I'll just raise it to them slightly until it's all the way up. Which is nerve-wracking because it, the machine's always shaking back and forth and tilting this way and tilting that way and tilting forward. And I feel like at any second it's just going to fall over and kill me. But I haven't done that yet. <laughs> If, you hear, if I am in the paper again, it's probably because I got crushed by one of my guys. <laughs> is that the largest machine, the one you just described? Is that the largest one you've ever had to move or deal no, with? No, those aren't so bad. Those are, I don't know, 400 pounds or so, which is nothing to sneeze at. But those are on wheels. I don't have to put them on a dolly and move them. It's just getting the leverage to get it where it needs to go. Um, I think a, a DDR is the heaviest thing I've ever had to move as a whole. 
because an entire DDR is 960 pounds, but it breaks up into four pieces, so it's not so bad. Mm-hmm. Um, but the largest like single piece machines I've, I've had to move, I think, uh, I think an Ivan Stewart's off road is one of the heaviest things I've ever had to move. Um, it's just one solid piece that does not break apart. And even just getting it back onto the dolly can be a challenge if I don't have a strap helping me out. Oh my gosh. What are some of the other challenges of this field besides the physical aspects In the article where you were interviewed, you talked about how some months when you were first starting out were pretty challenging. It's very cyclical. Um, I'll have months where, especially now where I have several businesses that are basically competing for the machines that I'm putting together. Um, I'll have months where I, you know, I sell 12 games and, and be doing all right. And I'll have other ones where I sold a game and I'm worried I'm going to pay my bills this month. Um, there is no real consistent income. There is now, but when at the very beginning, I didn't have any kind of contract work going on. Uh, I It was just whatever I had to sell and if someone would buy it. And then if someone had a repair for me to do, and the, those are both big ifs. So my wife having a nice steady paycheck, you know, it helped, but with me only being able to contribute every so often, some months were leaner than others. Wow. Were you also working at another job or this was your sole job at the time? When I first started the business in 2013, which I say started the business, I put out a Craigslist ad. That's what I consider the start of the business is March 6th, 2013. That's when I put out a Craigslist ad. Um, I just did that as a side gig while I worked at Chuck E. Cheese's. So I just worked in my garage nights and weekends. Um, it wasn't until June of 2016, I quit my day job and took this full time. I haven't looked back since. Wow. Do you miss working? And, and I'm going to pick on you because we all pick on one another in the Retrofaniacs Discord. But do you what? miss? No. <laughs> do you miss the? I don't know if rat race is a little too on the nose for Chuck E. Cheese. Dear Lord, no. Um, when I first started working there, I was at the you know the bottom of the totem pole. I was the guy who put on the suit and went out and danced for the kids. Um, any nightmare stories I have about Chucky came from that time period. Uh, that was back when I lived in Abilene when I first started working there. And I worked there for about a year. And um, basically, when I first started working, the tech was actually the guy who owned the first arcade I worked in. They gave me my first job. So I was working for him again. But the GM, whenever I came in, made all kinds of promises, I guess you could say. is like, okay, this, I want you to work this many hours. And I want, I want to groom you for this position. Uh, you know, work you full time, et cetera, et cetera. Well, he got fired for doing coke in the office. Oh, so is that a common occurrence? <laughs> it's the only time it happened while I was there. Um, he did was unable to fulfill those promises, and uh, the next guy that came along was was a nice guy, but he couldn't he couldn't do the things I was promised. I, I it was not a full time job. Um, I was I was doing under 35 hours a week, so whenever benefits and things like that should have kicked in, I was still considered a part-time employee, so none of it applied to me. And I just, I just wasn't making the money I needed or getting any of the benefits I needed, so I left and actually went back to my old job moving furniture. After about a month, my former my, the tech 
he was like, you know, there's a tech position open in Midland. You know, maybe you should apply for it. And I didn't really have any plans to move. I'd lived in Abilene my whole life. And I was like, yeah, I'll apply for it. Why not? And I went and interviewed and I got the job immediately. Just like, oh, you're Doug's guy? Yeah, it's, you're hired. So whatever. Wow. So when do you want to start? I'm like, I'm going to need a few weeks. So I put in my notice at my job and started figuring out, okay, well, we need some, we're renting a house. We need someone to take over the lease at the house. My sister ended up moving in. Um, we need to find a place to live somewhere that'll take our uh, multitude of dogs, which at the time we only had three, but still finding a place that'll rent to you with more than two animals is pretty rare. We had, we had uh, three dogs and uh, three cats. But we, everything kind of fell into place. We found a place to live. Um, she was unemployed, so she didn't have a job to leave at the time because this is when Texas had cut their budgets for education, and she was a first-year teacher. She was the last one hired, first one fired. So she didn't have a, anything other than, you know, family keeping her in Abilene. So she came along for the ride, and everything ended up working out, but it was very scary first moving here. Oh, my gosh. What would your advice be to someone who's maybe interested in getting into this field? Buy something and tinker with it. The only way really to learn anything is to put your hands on it. You can read all the manuals. You can watch all the YouTube videos. But until you actually get in there and electrocute yourself repeatedly, <laughs> you're not going to learn anything. So um, I don't work on there, – there's a lot of things I don't work on. But one of the things I don't work on is jukeboxes. And I would like to teach myself. So I have one. It's very buried right now, but I have one. And at some point when I do have the time, I would like to take it out, take it apart, and just kind of learn how it ticks. I'm not going to watch any videos. I'm not going to read up on anything. I'm just going to do it and see what happens. And I figure after doing that long enough, eventually I'll be able to say, yeah, I work on jukeboxes too. So what's the first song you're going to play on it? The one I have, I think, only has like one or two records in it anyway, so it's <laughs> probably going to be Boston's More Than a Feeling because I have that record. Well, there you go. We look forward to listening to that one day. You think it'll be a this year project? or No, it's probably within the next 20 years, and there's a pretty good <laughs> chance that record's too scratched to play anyway. <laughs> what, what do you love the most about this field and about tinkering and repairing machines like this? My favorite thing is not having to deal with all the corporate BS that came with working at Chucky. Um, to expand on what I was saying earlier, when I moved here and had a management position, everything changed. It was less about doing the job and more about towing the line, paying attention to your emails, conference calls, meetings, visits from the higher-ups, all of that. Uh, doing all your paperwork, keeping everything in line. I swear it was it was 80% bureaucracy and 20% actually working on stuff. And I don't miss that life at all. If if I die without ever having to sit into another conference call, I've lived a good life. Uh, <laughs> you, you don't want five meetings from no. eight to twelve. Nope. I I don't need any any meetings that could have been an email and any emails that could have been ignored. Um, <laughs> The only real corporate thing I have to do with this job is I do my own taxes and I do them quarterly. And it's really, I, 
I've figured my system out so that it's really easy to reconcile what I do. Uh, so doing all my own taxes, I can sit down and knock it out real quick. Um, but as for what I do now, my favorite part is definitely taking something that most people would perceive as trash because it's just a giant broken paperweight and rebuilding it and giving it brand new life and then moving it on to someone who will appreciate it either for the nostalgia or just because they can you know, bring it to a new generation and, and teach them about these things. Uh, just just seeing that go from one extreme to the other is definitely my favorite part. Oh, I love that. So what would you say are some cabinets or machines in more demand than others? So pinball has definitely raised in popularity recently. Um, I don't know if people are just home more, or just have more disposable income or what, but the pinball industry has kind of shifted in the last 10 years to where it used to be every brand new machine that came out went to a bar or a bowling alley or an arcade and went to a business and started making money. But every new pinball that comes out now, it's like 50-50. About half of them are still doing that. The other half goes straight to a private owner's home. And so home ownership has increased you know, greatly. And it's not just for the new stuff. That's for most of the used stuff I work on, too. Usually if I sell a pinball, it's not going into an arcade or into someone's business. It's going into someone's garage or, or living room. Oh, wow. Is there a certain type of pinball machine that's very popular? I know they have different themes like Adam's Family, Flintstones, Simpsons. The Adam's Family is the uh, highest selling pinball machine of all time. Uh, the golden age of pinball, uh, how a lot of people refer to it, is the 90s. And so that's when a lot of the best of the best pens and the highest rated pens of all time came out. Um, and that's back when those companies were still in business putting out some of their best stuff. And so a lot of that commands a very high price. You look at Adam's Family, Medieval Madness, Theater of Magic, things like that. Those can go above 10 grand for one of those machines just because they're so well loved to the point where some of those are actually um, – some people bought the rights and built new ones with the exact same play fields and everything. Um, they just made more because there was so much demand, but not enough supply. So they just built more and those are still commanding the same price. Um, I don't come across a lot of that equipment. And usually when I do, I can't afford it because even to buy broken ones is still more than I have, you know, just flowing around. So my wheelhouse for that kind of equipment is early solid state. So late, late 70s, early 80s. That's the stuff I see the most. That's what I kind of specialize in. And uh, I, I don't have any issue selling that stuff because those are still very good machines. They're not the crazy stuff that you get out of an Adams family, but there's still a lot going on. There's still a lot to do, and there's still a lot of enjoyment to be had with them. What about the arcade cabinet? I think you had mentioned Miss Pac-Man. Is that the most popular one? Miss Pac-Man and Gallagher are the two best-selling games of all time. Um, yeah, I can sell those all day. Uh, I can't really seek out specific machines because in this area I find what I find. Uh, but what I can do is my most popular items are multicades. And so I will take uh, an empty cabinet, usually an empty like eight-liner video poker cabinet, and I will repurpose it with new hardware and software, and I will make it into a multi-cade, so something that plays you know, thousands of different games. 
uh, running off of modern hardware and a flat screen and things like that. And those are my best sellers because I can basically build those from the ground up. Oh, wow. This thought popped into my head. Do you repair things like claw machines as well? There is a... So there's, there is a... Uh, I don't know if you can hear my cat, but... That's up. okay. I want to know your cat's opinions on all of these topics. His name is Yang, <laughs> and he needs to shut up. So... <laughs> What was the question? Uh, do you repair machines like claw machines? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so there's there there are some other uh, related coin op things that I will repair. I will work on like crane and claw machines, uh, coin pushers, change machines, things like that. Uh, but I don't work on jukeboxes or vending machines like Coke machines because I can't really deal with the refrigeration part of it. And um, Slot machines. I don't work on those either. Would you like to? Well, I bought one years ago with the intention of doing the same thing. I want to do with jukeboxes, taking it apart and figuring it out. It made a great table for years. <laughs> and eventually, I ended up giving it to someone who needed it for parts. Oh, my it's, God. It's one of those things that I mean to do, but I'll probably never get to. And you have what I have. What is the rarest machine you've worked on? I believe that's a question that you added to this, which is yes. a really good question. There's there's a story behind that. So most of the stuff I work on is fairly common. Uh, sometimes I'll come up with a you know a title that I can say the name and everyone's like, well, what the hell is that? I'm like I didn't know either. But just because it's rare doesn't mean it's good or desirable or valuable. I've come across a lot of machines like that. It's like, well, this game sucks. Um, but I, I bought a lot of games in Lubbock from a guy, and there were there's like Asteroids and some other like 70s and 80s machines, and one of them was called Fortress, and I'd never heard of it. It was by Gremlin, the company that made it, which uh, collaborated with Sega on a lot of games. They made Frogger and a, a few other games, but I'd never heard of this one. So I looked up it online, and there's not a lot of documentation about it, and I found out why. It was never mass produced. It was a game that they built a few of, put it into test markets, didn't do well, so they canceled the project. So I got one of the test machines, basically. Uh, it said there's less than 500 of them, probably far less than that now. Um, and I was able to get it working and playable and quickly found out why it did not get mass produced. That game sucks. It's like... It's like Missile Command, except you can't move your cursor. You can only fire in three arcs because there's a pirate ship that's shooting cannons at your fortress, and you have to fire cannons back to intercept them to protect your fortress. And if you get hit X amount of times or like a minute passes, then the game's over. And it's just, it's ugly, and the sound is annoying because all you hear as the cannonballs arc are just like, me, and that's the entire sound of the game. And it's just different pitches of whining noises as things are being shot at you, overlapping each other. And that's the only sound in the game. Hmm. Um, so I, I, it was neat that I got to work on it, brought it back to life, and I sold it to an arcade that was going to put it on the floor and let people, you know, experience this in a way that they never would have, you know, any other time. But, yeah, that game sucked. So you don't have one in your private collection? No, I got a good price for it, and I'm glad I did because I, I had a lot of offers come in that were all over the place. Basically, everyone was like, you're never going to sell this thing. I'll give you 300 bucks for it. And someone finally was like, 
I'll give you what it's worth. Ship it to me. So I wow. think it went to like Idaho or something like that. Is that the farthest you've ever had to ship something? As far as a full machine, yeah, I've shipped stuff to like Seattle area. Um, as far as parts go, I've had to send stuff to like Sweden. Wow. That's I don't not do. Too bad. I don't do a lot of shipping when it comes to full cabinets because it's expensive. And most of what I get is fairly common. You can find something closer that's going to be a lot cheaper to get to you. But uh, I did have a few rare machines that, you know, someone in Seattle wanted to buy. And so he made a deal on a few and packed them up and had a company come pick them up. And now they're in Washington. Wow. That's incredible. So what are some machines that you have for just your personal use that you probably will never sell? So I, I mentioned I have an in-law suite, and the living room of it is my game room. It's my barcade. And I've got six games in there. I've got the DDR, and then I've got a, uh, a Brida pinball, pinball machine. That's my favorite pen. I don't want to sell it. Uh, I have a Drum Mania drum simulator. Um, I had to buy that on eBay. It's the only place I can find one. They're, they're decently rare. Uh, I've got a Multicada built for myself. And then I've got a Miss Pac-Man Cabaret which means it's tiny. It's like five feet tall, maybe. It's got a small oh, monitor. not like the show cabaret. <laughs> no, no, no. Cabaret is the cabinet style. Uh, so it's it's an upright cabinet, but it's it's smaller than a typical upright. Um, I like it because I can wrap my arms around it and pick it up, so I feel super strong. Uh, but it's it's adorable and it takes up a fuller, uh, smaller footprint, so, so a lot of people like cabaret cabinets just because you can put a whole lineup of them. And it takes up so much less space. And then I've got a Play Choice 10 dual monitor, which plays uh, NES games, kind of. Oh, wow. So you must have a lot of parties at your house with all those games. Yeah, that's usually if I have a game night, it, it ends up in there. The The bedroom that's in that in-law suite also has, you know, a bunch of older consoles hooked up to it, hooked up to a, uh, a large CRT TV. So we can sit down and play some older games on that. So what do you see for the future of this industry? Are, do you think it's going to continue to grow? Or are you worried about any lulls? So there's always going to be a place for retro games, uh, not just for the people that are alive now that are playing them, but also for the kids that they introduce them to. Um, most of those collections are just going to be inherited by the kids, and so there's always going to be a need for someone to keep them up and running. Um as far as arcades go in a commercial sense, I mean, that has already changed significantly over the last few years. There had been a big resurgence of retro arcades that specialized mostly in, you know, 80s and 90s games, and those were doing all right, and then COVID hit, and a lot of those places did not survive. They had to sell off their equipment just to keep their people on the payroll, or if they had multiple locations, they had to shut down several other locations and consolidate just to, just to stay alive, because at least here in Texas, for the longest time, entertainment venues were seen as the lowest priority and so were they they were the last ones to open up and during that time they couldn't open in any capacity even if you had a machine in like a mall or a bowling alley just by itself like in the hallway or something it wasn't allowed to be plugged in it had to be off and taped off and no one could do anything with it and it took months before any of that got rescinded so a lot of people lost a lot of money and a lot of machines had to be sold off and some of them still haven't recovered. Um, there's a lot of those kinds of arcades in the DFW area, but not a whole lot locally. 
Um, so I can't say with any certainty how they've bounced back or if they've bounced back, but I'm going to an auction next month and most of those guys are my competition. So I'll find out then. Oh, I hope you have fun. I enjoy the auctions. They're a lot of fun. They're consignment auctions. So you don't know what's going to be there until you get there. But almost every time I've gone, it's been worth going. Oh, awesome. Do you like to travel to go to these different, do you go like to conventions or anything? I used to work cons. Um, there were some local ones put on by a guy who let me do it for free. So I can set up a booth, bring a few games, try to sell some stuff. But that's not really my demographic. Uh, the people who come in there looking to spend money aren't looking to drop a thousand dollars on a machine. Uh, so a lot of times I just give out a lot of business cards and then never talk to those people again. <laughs> um, outside of those auctions that for the last couple of years haven't been a thing or only just now starting again, I, I the only traveling I do is to do repairs or pick up or deliver. Oh my gosh. It sounds like you're staying busy though. Very much so. Um, I have actually cut off my repair queue entirely. I'm not accepting any new jobs. The only exceptions are uh, machines that I sold to them directly. So if you bought something from me and it breaks, I, I, I will still work on it even if it's out of warranty. But if you just come to me with a machine that needs repair, I'm sorry, I'm a year out at least. I can't even add it to the list right now. So I'm very slowly trying to go through all the repairs that have built up on that list. And I still have a long ways to go between the contract work that I do and trying to keep things in stock to be sold. And then anytime I have to do a delivery where it's out of town or a pickup out of town, that ends up taking up the whole day. You know, it's a whole day of productivity that I, I don't get. So I'm, I'm stretched fairly thin. Wow. But that's a, that's a good problem to have, right? That's what everyone tells me. <laughs> well, you mentioned that you'd like to work on jukeboxes, but do you have any other future plans? Not really. Um, what I'm doing is working, so I'm just going to keep doing it. I would like to expand because I do get people asking me to do repairs on things that I don't know how to work on. I would love to be able to expand my knowledge base and work on more stuff, but as it stands, I simply don't have the time. I'm sure I'll hit a lull at some point where I won't have any choice but to do that, um, but I'm hoping I don't hit that anytime soon. Well, you take time to play Mario Kart with us on most Friday nights, so. Well, I mean, I'm just, just going to be sitting on the couch drinking anyway. I might as well have <laughs> a controller in my hand and talk some smack while I do it. <laughs> well, how can listeners support you? So, as far as social media goes, I really only do two things. I've got my Facebook page, which is where the majority of business is done. Uh, everything I have for sale ends up there. Uh, I always have a pinned post that shows exactly what I have for sale. Pictures, pictures, prices, descriptions, things like that. And usually I'll put up, you know, what I'm working on in future projects and things like that. Um, but if you, you know, if you're not within a 200 mile radius of me, that's not going to do you any good. So the best way to support me, I suppose, would be to do, follow my TikTok, prime underscore arcade. And I put up videos several times a week of the repairs I'm doing like video logs of going to pick up stuff or deliver stuff and the road trips I make, uh, machines I'm putting up for sale, you know, things that are coming in for repair. And I usually walk through the process of what I've done to fix it and what it needed and what the end result is. And so even if you don't have any interest or the ability to buy anything I do, you can follow that account and see what I do and just kind of get an idea of what I do on a day-to-day -day basis. 
And I just I just thought of this question. What inspired the name Prime Arcade? Well, that's a nerdy ass story right there. So, <laughs> my nickname is K, just the letter K. And it's been that because uh, in high school, I had a very poor choice of haircut. I had a bowl cut that was bleached platinum blonde, almost white. So that resembled a character from King of Fighters that had the same haircut. And so I gained his name. Well, his his name technically is uh, K-Dash, but in the very first game, they called him K-Prime because he was like a copy of another character or something like that. I don't remember the story. So anyway, that's where the Prime came from because I used that nickname and it just kind of bounced off from that. My wife actually came up with it, but that's the origin of it. Oh, I love it. <laughs> I didn't know. I thought it was going to be something like I'm your primary resource for repairing no that's probably a better story and <laughs> that's the true story it's just nerd shit <laughs> i love that well mason is there anything else you'd like to share before we wrap this up well i can tell the story about how two of the machines that i have in my game room were stolen you stole them no they're stolen <laughs> i didn't steal them I bought them. <laughs> yes, yes. I okay. Let's let's talk about this. Okay, so the Miss Pac-Man and the Play Choice Ten are the two in question. There are six machines in total that I owned, that I I'm in possession of that legally I shouldn't. So a couple of years back, there's a guy on Facebook that just put up a couple of pictures of a bunch of games, with like a very generic ad that said, "Contact me, I'm selling games." And so I talked to the dude a few times. And he was very standoffish. He didn't want to give really any information about anything or come to terms on anything. He's just like, I'll get back to you. Months go by, and he finally calls me and wants to make a deal. So he tells me, you know, I've actually got over 100 games in this warehouse. You know, I'm here in Midland, so he's less than 20 miles away. Um, come take a look, pick some stuff out, we'll make a deal. So I have a friend in Midland who does kind of the same thing I do just on the side as a hobby. It's like, hey, let's go check this place out. Maybe we'll find some good stuff. So we go to, it's not a warehouse. It's a building behind a burned down house. That should have been my first sign. But it's, it's <laughs> literally a house that clearly had been on fire and was condemned. And behind it was a metal building. And he's like, yeah, they're back there. I'm like, well, I'm glad they're not in the house. So we go into this warehouse and it's an absolute hoarder's paradise. Uh, the entire floor is nothing but like boxes of brand new office furniture. There's a bunch of like random cars and motorcycles and just a bunch of crap. There's just a bunch of stuff just stacked everywhere. And then there's a second floor that's kind of a makeshift that someone had built just out of plywood that's full of arcade machines. There's, like you said, there's over a hundred. But whoever built this makeshift second floor uh, must have put everything up there with a forklift because there were no stairs. So there's the second floor, but no way to get to it. Oh, my God. So we ended up making <laughs> a cash deal with this guy where I picked out six games. My friend picked out six games. He's like, well, it's your responsibility to get these machines down and out. You just give me the money and we're good. So 
on the shortest part of the landing of the second floor, there was a, a car parked there that was like the windshield was busted. The hood was dented in. This thing was already messed up. So we were like, can we use that as a stepping stool? It's like, yeah, it's fine. So we picked up the games we wanted and then we moved them to that spot on the landing, tilted them on their back, pushed them off. So that the bottom landed on the hood of that car, stood it up, got back on the ground and did it again to get it to the ground. It was, it was a lot of height. It was a lot of weight. And there's just the two of us for most of it. But we got it done. Because it was such a good deal, we couldn't walk away. So we did, We spent all day. And we get all 12 of these machines down. We get them to, like, this back door. We get them loaded. We're done, right? We decide, you know, hey, we'll contact them in a few days, see if we can buy some more stuff. Because there's still a lot of good stuff in this warehouse. Two days later, I get a message on my Facebook page from a guy who's saying, hey, those machines you bought, that guy was not the owner. They were stolen. He's already been arrested. Here's the phone number of the detective who's working the case. Oh, my God. So I called the detective, had a conversation with him. Basically, uh, the owner of that warehouse, this is right when COVID had started, uh, was quarantining himself. And some dude just broke into this warehouse randomly, saw all this stuff, got dollar signs in his eyes, just started selling stuff like crazy. Uh, basically what happened is he, he spread his net too wide because he was trying to sell the whole lot to these people, I think, out of Florida who wanted to buy everything. And uh, they, they flew in and basically smelled a rat. So they did their research. Like... I don't know if they went to City Hall or what, but they found out who the actual owner of the building was, contacted him, and he's like, that's not me selling that stuff. And so they actually set up a sting operation to have some, like, a detective go there. And when the guy came to meet him, they arrested him on the spot. And it turned out he already had warrants out for his arrest. He was a multiple offender. He was going away for a while. And so the, the, the detective was like, okay, well, here's what happens now. It's completely up to the actual owner of these games what he wants to do whether he just wants you to give them back and, you know, the money you spend is gone. It's lost. You you can go to small claims court for it, but good luck. Uh, so either just give them back or maybe you could buy them again from him, whatever kind of deal he wants to work out. Or, you know, since you work on games, maybe, you know, since all this other stuff has been sitting for 30 years and doesn't work, you know, maybe you can work some kind of deal where you, you'll fix some stuff for him and kind of work off your debt. I don't know. That's up to you. It's out of my hands. So like, okay, well, you've got my number. Give it to the guy. Have him call me. A couple of weeks go by. I haven't heard anything. So I called the detective and talked to him again. He's like, yeah, he's not really good about getting back to us, but he's, he's supposed to in the next couple of days. Just, you know, keep your phone open. That was two years ago. I have never heard from the guy. I know his name is John. I don't have a last name. I don't have a phone number. So I have no way to contact him. So I've been sitting on these machines for over two years. Now, the two that I have in my game room, I bought for myself. I wanted them for my own collection. So I went ahead and fixed them and put them in there. I just figured, well, whenever it's time for them to go, it's time for them to go. The others, I just put in storage. So I've just enjoyed those two games, and the other ones have just sat for a couple of years. Uh, I did a little research, and with the value of what I paid for them, the statute of limitations is three years. So May of next year, legally, they're mine. 
but it also goes by what you determine the value to be, whether it's perceived value or it's the value of what I actually paid for those games, where it falls on the scale. So whether it's going to be three years or five years or whatever. So I'll contact a lawyer after three years and confirm. But if my math is correct, then next year, those games are legally mine. Now, if he contacts me before that, you know, he can have a stuff backer or work out whatever, but I don't have any way to contact him. And the detective wouldn't even give me his info. He just said, he'll call you. So I'm just kind of stuck out here waiting to see what I can do with this stuff. Uh, if he wants the stuff back, it's going to take a while because it's very much in the back of my workshop, buried behind a lot of stuff. Oh, and uh, one of them actually isn't even in my possession anymore. I didn't sell it, but I sold a game to one of my best clients and it uh, it started messing up like right after I delivered it. So one of the other games I had, I gave to him as kind of a loner because it was very similar. I just never swapped him back. So, I mean, if I have to go get it, I know where he is and he knows the story, so he'll give it back. But I have five of the games and one of them is not even with me. So I hope I don't have to give it back. Oh, my God. <laughs> In my defense, I had no idea that the guy who was selling them to me was not the owner. So, Well, that until you said that he broke into that guy's warehouse, I was wondering, okay, did somebody relocate someone's machines? Like, how do you steal these huge machines without somebody noticing? Yeah, he didn't move anything. He just opened the doors like, there they are. Good luck. So we weren't the only ones who did that with. There were several other people that bought machines that ended up having to file reports as well, so... I guess the original owner is not too worried about them. No, he's not. And you can tell because the machines that have been sitting in there have been sitting there for 30 years. Um, there are no machines from the 90s in that warehouse. They're all 80s or older. And the latest tax stamp I saw on anything was 1991. So I'm assuming he's an operator that got out of the business, stored everything, and just never did anything with it, which is more common than you would think. A lot of old operators have that mentality where you know they don't want to sell anything. They don't want to get rid of anything. I don't know if they think it's going to appreciate a value or if they're just, you know, if they're still working, if they're afraid they're going to arm their competition or what. But it's it's pretty common to the point where if I come across a guy who's like that, I don't bother to deal with them because I know I'm not going to get anything off of them. That that was a banger of a story. I. <laughs> Is there anything else you'd like to share with like, listeners? Yeah, if you, if you want to come to the house and play with some contraband, I got you. <laughs> Mason, that this was delightful. Um, I always enjoy talking with you. I I am just blown away by that story. I, I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> I wasn't expecting it when I got the message either. <laughs> well, thank you so much for making time. Um, I hopefully one day we can meet one another at a Waffle House or a Taco Bell. Waffle House. We don't we don't have Taco Bell here, so I want to go somewhere we don't have. The closest Waffle House is four hours away. Yes, he he fussed at me because I posted a picture of my coffee at Waffle House, and I think Mason really loves Waffle House. It's very rude. <laughs> well, thank you again, Mason, and I'm so excited for people to get to learn more about arcade repairs and follow you on TikTok, read the article, follow you on Facebook. Even if they don't live near Odessa, they can at least see what machines you're working on and stay up to date with your adventures because oh, I wouldn't I'm, say I'm you're... absolutely a TikTok famous now. What are you talking about? <laughs> I wouldn't say you have a job. You have an adventure, right? 
especially if you ask my wife, she talks about how jealous she is when it comes to the flexibility of my hours. And sometimes when I do really well in a month, you know, how much money I bring in and, she, you know, she's jealous of that too, but I don't know why she's the one spending it. <laughs> Just the, the, the freedom I have to, to be able to leave and, and come back and fit in appointments and things like that is because I can, I'm flexible and she, she covets that. I hope that remains the case for you until you decide to retire one day. That's the problem. I don't really have a retirement plan. She's my retirement plan. <laughs> she pays into two retirement accounts because I don't pay into anything. I, I assume I'll just die fixing a Pac-Man and she'll collect. I hope that's not the case. Well, I mean, not anytime soon, but. <laughs> How about, I don't know, 50, 60 years? God, this sounds like such a long, that's too long. I don't want that. <laughs> you don't want that. <laughs> well, thank you again, Mason. And listeners, you can find more 1v1 interviews and Boss Rush's other podcasts at bossrush.net. And you can follow me, Celeste, on Twitter at FairyCrypt. So until next time, we'll talk to you all later. Bye, guys. See you.